Ladies and gentlemen, may we have your attention, please? Ladies and gentlemen, if you would give your attention to the podium. We have tonight's chair. Please say hello to Perry Pelts. Thank you, everybody, and good evening. I'm delighted to welcome everyone to the 12th annual Penn Literary Gala. We're all very excited about tonight and so happy that all of you could be here. I am especially happy to be your MC because, as it turns out, I am a frustrated writer. So four years ago, when I was asked to host a book show on A&E, I was thrilled. I thought, you know, this is it. How wonderful to be able to interview all sorts of great authors and present their wonderful literary works to the world. Or so I thought, because it turns out there's this one little tiny drawback, and that happens to be called the time slot. And here I am, all excited, and then we learned that our time slot was going to be Sunday morning at 7 a.m., which, keep in mind, is Sunday morning at 4 a.m. on the West Coast. So it was a little drawback. Anyway, when we protested, we were told, you know, it's a book show, it's about books, you know, it's authors, who knows, maybe people aren't going to like it, it may be too literary. We got a whole list of responses. But I'm very happy to say tonight that they were wrong. And as it turns out, ultimately the viewers, and reasonably good ratings for the time slot, they decided to push us forward to 10.30 in the morning on Sundays, which of course is 7.30 in the morning, which I know isn't perfect, but it certainly is moving in the right direction, which is all good news. So the moral of the story is books do get ratings, and it seems that people really do care. So I'm especially pleased to be here tonight to support the wonderful work that Penn does to advance literature and defend freedom of expression. Now, I get the very fun part. I get to stand up here and introduce all of these wonderful speakers, but obviously there are a lot of people who are working very, very hard behind the scenes to make this all happen and to make it be such an enormous success. So let me begin, please, by introducing one of tonight's co-chairs, who began her career at Francis Ford Coppola's San Francisco Weekly called The City, before moving to The Village Voice. She then created, launched, and for nine years edited Premier Magazine. She is now the Executive Vice President for Movies and Miniseries at ABC Television, Television, so she does know something, or a lot, about time slots. So please, everyone, welcome Susan Lyne. Thank you. Thank you, Perry. I was told to be witty, dignified, serious, and charming, and to thank many people who uh, contributed their time and effort to this event all in one minute. We're aiming for a short program tonight so you can get back to the real draw of the Lynn, uh, of the Penn Literary Galas, which is conversation with your dinner partners and your literary hosts. But I really do want to thank my co-chairs for the evening, Larry Kirschman, chairman of Time Warner Trade Publishing, and Tony Goodell, who is a board member and champion of Penn, needs no introduction to this group. Tony enlisted Larry and me to work on last year's event, and we agreed to come back this year only if the team stayed together. They've not only been great colleagues, but they've become truly good friends. And I would bet serious money that that is a rare distinction in the world of event programming. We were joined this year by a trio of vice chairs, all authors themselves, Marie Brenner, 
Patricia Bosworth and Annette Tappert. I'm going to mortify them all by making them stand up and take your gratitude. So. Our honorary chairs this year are novelists, playwrights, theater directors, composers, essayists, visual artists, biographers, and some are even double and triple threats. Chuck Close, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., Richard Howard, Joyce Carol Oates, Grace Paley, Stephen Sondheim, and Julie Taymor. We're honored to have them with us tonight and so grateful for their support and involvement with Penn. I am now going to go back to my witty, dignified, serious, and charming table mates. But I want to acknowledge HarperCollins, Random House, Simon & Schuster, Penguin Putnam, Time Warner Trade Publishing, and Michael Bloomberg for their tremendous support for Penn. And a final nod of thanks to Lincoln Center and to the New York State Theater for running a union shop. I know it made your entrance this year significantly easier. <laughs> And I can assure you that none of us on the committee makes even a dinner reservation anymore without checking whether there's a union contract at the restaurant. Thank you. Susan, thank you. Our next speaker is the author of an extraordinary new book about the Reagan years and the Strategic Defense Initiative. The book is called Way Out There in the Blue, Reagan, Star Wars, and the End of the Cold War. According to Joan Didion, the book has, quote, finally addressed and definitively answered the riddle of the Reagan years. And Joan, if you're out there, I hope I got that right. Anyway, please welcome the newly elected president of Penn American Center, Francis Fitzgerald. Thank you, Perry, and thank you. Welcome to everyone. On behalf of Penn's board and its membership of 2,600 writers and editors, I want to thank our dinner co-chairs, Susan Line, Larry Kirschbaum, and Tony Goodale. And thank you all for the tremendous material and psychological boost this evening gives to Penn's work here and abroad. The work of advancing reading and defending free expression and literature. You're about to hear very briefly about the two parts of that work. Thanks again to the luminous group of writers and artists who are our honorary co-chairs this year, as well as to the superb roster of literary table hosts. The presence this year of Chuck Close, Stephen Sondheim, and Julie Taymor reminds us that the forces that inhibit the arts and imperil artistic freedom cut across boundaries of medium and genre. We have to work together, and we do. Then, as we will hear, a healthy literary culture requires not only freedom from censorship, but also an audience with the ability and disposition to read. Penn also works hard to that end. This dinner is the occasion when we honor three individuals who, who have paid unusually heavy price prices for the freedoms that are necessary for literature to flourish. Each one of them could, of course, be taken to stand for many, many others. But I think you'll agree that these three people are especially deserving. 
We are particularly grateful to Barbara Goldsmith and the Barbara Lubin Golds Goldsmith Foundation, and to Paul Newman, A.E. Hotchner, and Newman's own for the generous support that enables us to give these awards. I would also like to recognize and give personal thanks to Michael Roberts, our ABLE Executive Director. Where is he? And also to, to Tamara Moskowitz, our Director of Development, who has done so much to make this evening a success. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to introduce you to our next presenter. He has so many prizes for his theatrical works that we actually don't even have time to mention them, which is a really good thing when you have that many awards. But suffice it to say that he has won virtually every prize in drama for his seven-hour, two-part epic, Angels in America. He is currently working his next play, Henry Box Brown, or The Mirror of Slavery, and a new play with music called St. Cecilia. So we're thrilled to welcome Tony Kushner. Thanks. The Board of Trustees of Kilgore College in East Texas made a terrible mistake. Usually when college presidents are picked, their chief qualification is that they can be counted on to defend endowment campaigns rather than education. People who know how to give a quizzling spirit the appearance of a spine. But the Kilgore College Board, for reasons best known to them, picked as their president Dr. William Holda someone who has failed to split hairs and dissemble and cave in on cue. Last fall, when the Kilgore College Drama Department announced its intentions to present a student production of a play about homosexuals and AIDS and other things East Texas possesses in abundance but is perhaps unaccustomed to addressing publicly, <laughs> hooligans and homophobes assembled at the gate expecting cooperation and collaboration in the usual manner. Instead, Dr. Holda very politely explained to the bullies that freedom of expression was an unabridgeable component of a liberal arts curriculum and protected by the Constitution besides. And when the bullies failed to be impressed by his argument, Dr. Holda thanked them for their opinions and politely suggested that they take a hike. Not in so many words, this is an East Texas gentleman. I am translating his words into New York ease. The bullies howled and gnashed their teeth and got nasty. They waited for him to collapse, as respectable college presidents so often do. He didn't. The play went on. Every ticket sold in advance because of the great publicity. The nasty people crept back into the primordial, fundamentalist, anti-democratic fog whence they have their gloomy joy. And a small but I think significant victory was won for free speech and the liberal arts and dignity. This drama took place far from big media attention. This act of courageous defiance was called forth by principle rather than by self-promotion, which makes it rarer still, and its protagonist even more deserving of the award he is receiving tonight. I wish any number of New York City officials from the chancellor of the city university to the police commissioner would learn from Dr. Holda that an appointed leader's first loyalty is not to his or her appointer, but to the people from whom the power one wields derives and is held in sacred trust. Dr. Holda honored that trust, and for this it is my pleasure and honor to present him with the Penn Newman's Own First Amendment Award and this beautiful sculpture by the great Mark DeSuvereau, 
I am very grateful to Penn, Paul Newman, and A.E. Hotchner and the committee for their decision. Mostly, I am grateful to Dr. Holder. Congratulations and welcome to New York. Thank you. I would like to first thank Tony Kushner for his nomination of me for this award. I would like to thank the judges, Michelle Coffey and Marjorie Hines, who have championed First Amendment rights throughout this country, and acclaimed writers Mary Gordon, Luke Sante, and Wendy Kaminer. I'd like to also thank Penn as an organization and an organization that I didn't even know existed. When Diana called to tell me that I had received the award, I had gotten back from a long trip and I was tired, and my assistant said, I think this is another organization trying to sell you a book. <clears throat> so my initial response may have been somewhat subdued, but as I became more aware of the award, I grew in my excitement of it. Most especially, I would like to thank Paul Newman and A.E. Ochner for their support of First Amendment rights and their establishment of this award. I learned this morning when I was at the Penn office that in the nine years of this award, I am the first male to win the award and the first college administrator to win the award. And, and that either tells us something about males and college administrators, or more importantly, tells us about the role of females and those people who work in the trenches and on the front lines to really defend our First Amendment rights, especially in print and in literature. In Tony's second volume, Perestroika, Joe says to Lewis, you will always have to make choices. And finally, all life can offer you in the face of these terrible decisions is that you can make choices freely. It is not often that individuals in this country and in other countries get recognition or reward for doing that which is right or that which they think is right. And you and I both know that so often our only recognition and our only reward is that internal reward that comes from believing that we did what is right. And so I cannot fully express the fact that to receive this recognition publicly and the award is, uh, renders me almost speechless because uh, it is certainly not something that was expected. When I return to Texas, my work, my struggle is to continue. It is, is not finished. What uh, was not maybe related to you was that uh, the Gregg County Commissioners pulled from our Texas Shakespeare Festival, a festival that is currently preparing its 15th season, a $50,000 contribution and uh, that was their way of saying um, how they reacted to our unwillingness to pull a play with which they disagreed. It is 
definitely a frightening prospect to know that in this world that we consider to be so advanced and progressive that individuals are willing to use the extensive limits of power and money to limit that which the artistic community tries to, to uh, present. And uh, lest I felt too bad, all I had to do was from deep east Texas look at what was going on at the Brooklyn Museum to, to know that it was not a localized phenomenon. <laughs> I joked earlier about college administrators, but I, I want to tell you that the very nature of education, and in particular higher education, is that we must be able to challenge our most deeply held beliefs and subject them to that analysis because just as Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living, so too the unexamined idea is not worth holding. And so if we do not subject our very ideas to analysis and criticism and the crucible of time and challenge, then those ideas are not worth holding. And so this evening, as I look at this beautiful sculpture, and, it, and this evening is the first that I've seen it, it is so symbolic because it is a chain with a broken link, and it, to me, symbolizes breaking the bondage and the chains that so often try to limit our thinking so that all of us can go free. As an organization, as leaders in the literary community, you, who are gathered here this evening, help all of us provide light in the midst of our darkness. You become, for us who continue that struggle, true angels in America. Thank you for this honor. since we, Paul and I have been giving this award, all the winners of the award have lost their positions. And Dr. Holder is the first one who's kept his job. <laughs> so the award to him is $25,000 for his courage. But that doesn't answer it, because the commissioners think that they're going to punish him by taking away the Shakespeare Festival. So I asked him how much money he's been able to get in. He said he got $10,000 from the Dramatist Guild. He needs 50. He got 10,000 from posting his story on the internet, and the internet sent him 10,000. And he said 10, 12,000 from neighboring Texas towns who would like to move the Texas festival there. But he'd like to keep it where it is. And I think that not only are we going to honor him, we're going to tell the commissioners of Kilgore, Texas, that they're not going to tell us what free expression is. And on behalf of all of you who live by free expression, the writers and the publishers, I'm going to give Dr. Kilgore $18,000. He now has $50,000 to go back to Texas. Congratulations. 
I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, one because she's an old family friend, and another because I had an opportunity to interview her on that show about her uh, latest book, Other Power, The Age of Suffrage, Spiritualism, and the Scandalous Victoria Woodhull. In addition to a very full literary career, she has found time to serve as a trustee of the New York Public Library, a member of the New York State Council on the Arts, and an appointee to two major presidential commissions. So a warm welcome to Barbara Goldsmith. Thank you. My remarks will be brief. If you want to know more about the Freedom to Write Committee and what we do, there's an insert in your program that will tell you a little more than I can in two minutes. The Freedom to Write Award started 13 years ago with a very specific purpose, to turn a spotlight on dissident writers that were disappearing in prison, very often tortured. And the idea was to get as much media coverage as possible and to put, as Michael Roberts says, a human face on these names so that they might be considered. Of the 20 writers who were in jail at the time that we gave this award, 14 got out within months, sometimes within days of when the award was given. If you read your New York Times this morning, our two award winners were written up in the Times, and that kind of spotlight will be of invaluable help in letting these governments know that they cannot do these repressive things we notice, we see. Our two winners tonight are Shui Deung, who writes under the pen name of Ma Zhe. He was a student when he was arrested for taking part in student protests and spent four years in prison. He got out when he was 26. And last year, he started a journal with four other poets calling for more free expression in China. He was arrested again. We don't know where he is. Unfortunately, we know he's in prison, but where and when he will come to trial and what his sentence is, we do not know. So we hope that we will bring attention to Ma Zhe and his poetical work. Our second winner, Flora Brovina, was a pediatrician, a woman's rights activist, and an Albanian who ran a shelter for women and children during the situation in Kosovo. For that, she was arrested and has been thrown into prison Many people said she was abducted from her apartment. She was given a trial with no fairness, and her appeal of saying that children don't know what nationality they are until their parents tell them was totally ignored. Last week, her husband visited her in prison. She has angina, 
She's not getting any medical attention. He was not allowed within 18 feet of her. They had to shout to each other. And we hope that Flora Brovina will now come to the world's attention. Flora Brovina's son is here tonight, Ely Begu, and I hope that for you, Ely, we will secure your mother's release. And there he is. In closing, I want to say that we have 15,000 members in Penn and 131 centers, and we're out there all the time working for Freedom to Write. Freedom to Write is the heart of Penn because it represents everything we stand for morally and in every other way. In 30 countries, we do our work, and this year we've handled over 200 appeals for freedom of expression. And we expect to intensify our efforts in the years to come. So I thank you very much for your attention to these awards. Barbara, thank you. To conclude our program this evening, I'm happy to call on one of our foremost public intellectuals and a brilliant and influential commentator on the African-American experience and on all matters of race in our national life. He is the author of Wonders of the African World, Figures in Black, The Signifying Monkey, and Colored People, a memoir. He has also edited the Norton Anthology of African-American Literature and co-edited the Dictionary of Global Culture. So please welcome the W.E.B. Dubois Professor of the Humanities and Chair of the Afro-American Department at Harvard. A warm welcome for Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Thank you. Thank you, Perry, for that very kind introduction. I know you all want to get to your food, so I'll, I will be, I'll try to be brief. On behalf of the honorary chairs, I would like to thank Penn for inviting us to share the program with these three very courageous individuals who, whose remarkable stories you've just heard. And I think that we should give them all a round of applause one more time, please. Now, as their cases so vividly illustrate, Penn has been a crucial ally in the fight against every form of censorship and all that oppresses human creativity. And we salute that effort tonight. But before we conclude, I would like to take just a moment to talk about another facet of Penn's work against the subtler but no less effective censorship than that of prison bars. The illiteracy that affects one in five Americans and its insidious partner, A-literacy, or the ability without the inclination to read, which reaches many millions more. Through Penn's Readers and Writers Program and its new offshoot, the Book Groups Initiative, this organization addresses itself to those left behind by bringing authors and their works into schools, adult education centers, and other community settings in low-income neighborhoods. Here, writers speak directly with adults and young people who have the ability to read, but in whom a passion for reading has not yet been kindled. The program springs from the observation that 
especially in communities with struggling educational systems and very little exposure to cultural resources like libraries and bookstores, the experience of receiving and reading a book and meeting its author can create lasting ties to the world of books and literature. Penn's Readers and Writers Program can provide the epiphany, the inspiration that can change a person's relationship to books for life. We are all in this room because we had that experience. For me, it happened in the summer of 1965. I was attending an Episcopal church camp in eastern West Virginia, high in the Allegheny Mountains overlooking the south branch of the Potomac River. It was August 1965, and I was one month shy of my 15th birthday. Now this, I should say at the outset, was no ordinary church camp. Our themes that year were, one, is God dead? And secondly, can you love two people at the same time? Now, you got to remember, it was 1965. Dr. Zhivago was big that summer, and Episcopalians were never once to let grass grow under their feet. Now, after a solid week of complete isolation, some delivery man bringing milk and uh, bread over to the camp told the head counselor that all hell had broken loose in Los Angeles and that the colored people there had gone completely crazy. And then he handed him a Sunday newspaper screaming the news that Negroes were rioting in some place called Watts. Now, I, for one, was completely bewildered because I didn't understand what a riot was. Did that mean that colored people were being killed by white people or were colored people killing white people? Well, watching myself being watched by all of those white campers, after all, how many black Episcopalians can there be in the state of West Virginia, right? <laughs> there were three, and two of them were my cousins. I experienced that strange combination of power and powerlessness that you feel when the actions of another black person affect your own life simply and only because you both are black. For I knew that the actions of people I didn't know had become my responsibility as surely as if the black folk in Watts, Los Angeles, California had been my, relative, my relatives in the village of Piedmont, West Virginia, 18 miles away. Well, sensing my mixture of pride and discomfiture, an Episcopal priest from New England, where else, handed me a book later in the day. And from the cover, the wide-spaced eyes of a black man transfixed me. Notes of a Native Son, the book was called by someone called James Baldwin. Was this man the author, I wondered to myself, this man with a closely cropped natural hairstyle, as we used to put it in the 60s, brown skin, splayed nostrils, and thick, wide lips, so very Negro, so comfortable being so? It was the first time I had ever heard a voice capturing the terrible exhilaration and anxiety of being a person of African descent in this country. From the book's first few sentences, I was caught up thoroughly in the sensibility of another person, but this time, ladies and gentlemen, for the first person in my life, that of a black person. The book performed for me the Adamic function of naming, naming the complex racial dynamic of the American cultural imagination. Coming from a tiny, segregated black community in a white village, I knew both that black culture had a texture, had a logic of its own, and that it was inextricable from so-called white culture. That was the paradox that James Baldwin identified and negotiated for me, and that is why I say his prose shaped my identity as an African-American as much by the questions he's, he raised as by the answers he provided. If blackness was a labyrinth, James Baldwin would be my Cicerone, my Virgil, my guide. I couldn't put the book down. I raced through this book, then others, filling my commonplace book with his marvelously long sentences, bristling with commas and qualifications. 
Of course, his biblical cadences spoke to me with a special immediacy, for I too was to have been a minister, having been saved in a small black evangelical church when I was 12 years old. From this fate as well, the Episcopalians and yes, James Baldwin diverted me, thank God. I devoured James Baldwin's books. First, Notes of a Native Son, then Nobody Knows My Name, and then The Fire Next Time, and finally, Another Country. I began to imitate his style of writing using dependent clauses whenever and wherever I could, much to my English teacher's chagrin. Consider the following sentence. In a really cohesive society, one of the attributes, perhaps, of what is taken to be a healthy culture has, generally, and I suspect necessarily, a much lower level of tolerance for the maverick, the dissenter, the man who steals the fire, than have societies in which the common ground of belief having all but vanished, each man in awful and brutal isolation is for himself to flower or to perish. There are 16 commas in that sentence. In my essays at school, I was busy trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, I was busy trying to cram as many commas into my sentences as I could until Mrs. Iverson, my eighth grade English teacher, forbade me to use them, and I quote, unless absolutely necessary. And I guess to confess, ladies and gentlemen, that I have been imitating and rewriting James Baldwin ever since August of 1965. Penn's Readers and Writers Program aims to replicate to replicate this sort of experience for those isolated, blocked out from the great republic of letters. The program comes at no cost to the readers. The authors give generous, generously of their time, Penn arranges the visit, provides the books, and works with instructors in the host programs to prepare students for the visit. For many of the readers involved, these are the first books they have ever owned, books they can bring home, they can write in the margins, they can incorporate into their lives, but it is the author visit, above all else, that narrows the enormous gulf many see between themselves and the world of literature. It often helps that the first of the three um, writers visiting each class shares the race or ethnicity of the students. The chance to meet, hear, and question the person behind the book allows the students to recognize the value of their opinions, their perspectives. Above all else, they experience, often for the very first time, the special pleasure that reading, that reading and reading alone brings. And no one has expressed this pleasure more movingly to me than my hero, the great W.E.B. Du Bois, who in 1903 said, I sit with Shakespeare, and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. From out the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of the stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. Is this the life you grudge us? O oh, nightly America. Since its inception, Readers and Writers has gone into over 200 locations throughout this country, reaching more than 17,000 people of diverse ethnic and cultural backgrounds. In just the last few months, Penn has sent Russell Banks, 
Edgewich Danticat, and Jamaica Kincaid to visit with Caribbean hospital workers at local 1199 in Manhattan. It has sent Sherman Alexi to read to Navajo students at a reservation in Arizona, and Dorothy Allison to engage black and Hispanic continuing education students in the Bronx. The, Brook, the, sorry, the Book Group's initiative is extending the experience of readers and writers by working with more advanced readers in more intimate, non-instructional settings. Participants meet for four to six weeks in informal social groups of 10 or 12, assisted by a facilitator. This phase culminates with an author visit. Afterwards, the groups are encouraged to continue on their own, with Penn offering support in the form of books or guidance. Through both these programs, Penn is bringing new readers from basic literacy into a genuine and enduring relation to the world of literature. And Penn is also beginning to create a truly diverse and access accessible community of letters by dismantling the barriers that exist between writers and a large, untapped audience. So I urge you, ladies and gentlemen, as influential participants in the literary culture that we love, that we share, that we cherish, to join me in assisting these programs in whatever way that you can. Visit a site, donate books, or work to bring readers and writers and the book group's initiative the very visibility that they deserve. Help Penn continue the good work, book by book, visit by visit, reader by blessed reader. Thank you very much. Professor Gates, thank you. Thank you to all of tonight's award recipients, and thank you to each and every one of you for being here and supporting this wonderful and important evening. Enjoy your dinner. Thank you. Thank you.